What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. A lifetime has passed since the horrific events of Taco Tuesday. Our lives descended into chaos. This new life has toughened and hardened us all. Two copies, please. One black, one with just a touch of cream and 25 sugars. Polar vortex or political infighting getting you down? Try a couple extra sugars in your coffee. Hey, it works for Emmett, it works for me. The voices of Chris Pratt and Elizabeth Banks there in The Lego Movie 2, the sequel to the 2014 box office hit, and yes, my favorite film of that movie year. Modern Times meets Tati's Playtime. Yeah, you got it. This week on the show, we've got a review of Lego 2 Plus, thoughts on Velvet Buzzsaw, the latest from Nightcrawler director Dan Gilroy, now playing on Netflix. All that and more. Just going to put my critic badge on here. <laughs> and I'm film spotted. Welcome to Film Spotting. So The Lego Movie was one of the better movies of 2014. Another great film from 2014, Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, featuring perhaps a career best performance by Jake Gyllenhaal. I think you believe that, Josh. Well, until Velvet Buzzsaw, Well, that's true. (laughs) He's had a lot of good ones recently, but that one is certainly right up there. We've got the new Lego Movie, which we'll be discussing here in a moment. We've also got a new film from Gilroy and Gyllenhaal, Velvet Buzzsaw, an art world satire slash horror movie that is not really probably going to be in the running for the best of 2019. Velvet Buzzsaw debuted on Netflix last weekend. Gyllenhaal stars along with Rene Russo, John Malkovich, and Tony Collette. We will have a few thoughts about that film later in the show. Plus, Massacre Theater, the next film spotting marathon announced, and podcast listeners will get Josh's thoughts on Catherine Hardwick's Miss Bala. How did you possibly make time for Miss Bala? Well, when you're stuck in Michigan on a Saturday night all alone... And you've just recently seen the original? Yeah, you make time for Miss Ball. Okay, it's playing in Michigan? Yeah. I guess it did come out wide, didn't it? It was wide. Okay. First, though, even I, perhaps the Lego Movie's biggest fan, wasn't sure we needed a follow-up. Does the Lego Movie 2, the second part, prove me wrong? Times have changed. You need to change with them. We have to be tough and battle-ready. Look, a shooting star, make a wish! so bad nothing got in ah, something got in i'm general mayhem bring me your fiercest leader lucy emmett We just walked out of our screening of the Lego Movie 2. When the first one left off, everything was pretty awesome in the Lego world. It's no longer that way. Bricksburg is now Apocalypseburg, and it's basically a daily nightmare. They're under siege all the time from these invaders from another planet. And at one point, Lucy slash Wildstyle is abducted, which sends Emmett, voiced by Chris Pratt, off to be the hero and bring her back and restore harmony to this universe. Josh, as we noted at the top of the show, you loved 
the first Lego movie. I thought it was very good. You had it as the best film of the year. I'm guessing then you really didn't have any expectation that this film would match what Christopher Miller and Phil Lord pulled off with that movie. They're back here as screenwriters and producers, but not directing. So I suppose my question is, did this movie exceed your lowered expectations? Because they had to be lower. Yeah, they were lower. Mike Mitchell, the director, this time around. Um, You know, first of all, congratulations on streamlining the plot. The way you did. It's pretty complicated. Oh, my goodness. I took out a lot there. That is like, that is all you need to know. But there is so much more going on in this film. And I was actually surprised when we did watch the end credits. The end credits, possibly one of the better sections of this movie. Agree. Very meta commentary on end credits with the song from Lonely Planet. Enjoyed that quite a bit. And when I saw that Lord and Miller were the screenwriters, I was a little surprised because it it certainly has the cleverness they're known for, the wit, uh, those meta touches. I think this was an enjoyable film, but I would have guessed other people had written it trying to mimic hmm. that style. Okay. It just didn't have that zip. and Especially early on, it doesn't have that zip. Early on, it doesn't. Uh, it maybe starts to hit its stride. And this is a this felt like a chore when it came time to really wrap up all these convoluted plot threads that they had going on. And, and I think basically what happened is that when you look at the Lego movie, the ideas at play there were perfectly in sync with the form of the film. Mm-hmm. It was all about choosing between obsessive control or creative freedom. And then they had this element of chaos, you know, cloud cuckoo land thrown in as well. And the ideas were right there on the screen here. The ideas at play feel very much retrofitted onto the concept they established in the first movie. So it was essentially, we know what we're going to do. We know what this is going to look like. What plot slash theme can we kind of force onto that? And they seem to be figuring it out as they go. Obviously, that's not what happened, but that's the feel of the movie while you're watching it. Uh, It just feels very retrofitted. It feels... Basically, if you love the Cloud Cuckoo Land segment of the Lego movie, I think you will really like this because that's what it felt like for me. Just a lot of chaos, trying to find some sort of meaning. It hits moments of humor. Uh, There is some visual inventiveness here and there. So I would recommend it, especially if you did enjoy the first film. But it was a pretty far drop off for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. One of the things I thought was pretty funny early on, and certainly as the movie plays out, this is supported. I was thinking about Heidi Stevens, who's a writer here for the Chicago Tribune, happens to be married to friend of the show, Michael Phillips. And I could have sworn, and I looked this up to confirm it, and it's the case, that she wrote an article around the time the Lego movie came out, bemoaning the fact that there were a lot of movies and TV shows at the time that seemed to be, as the headline put it, taking the fun out of being a girl. She used... The Lego movie is an example because she thought that the wild style character was, in her words, scolding and joyless. And then you get to the end of that movie and it seems to hammer that point home, this notion of the fun wrecking girl. I mean, that's literally how the first movie ends. In terms of the little sister. The little sister, yes, right? Yes, not in this wild movie, style, but yeah. Exactly. And this movie almost feels like a direct response to Heidi Stevens Pete's. It's yeah, as if I can see it's that. as if they wanted to take all the the lessons from that that column and see if they could apply them to a movie and these invaders from the girl's planet or the more feminine planet, conventionally so, 
they attack right at the beginning of this film and right away you know what the battle lines are you know how they're drawn and you do know where the movie's headed unlike the first movie this one's entirely predictable in terms of what that final kind of message is going to be and you know that it is going to try in some way to reconcile these very conventional sort of cliche notions of femininity and masculinity and i applaud it taking on that task i also respect that it didn't try to recreate or replicate, I suppose, the surprise of the first film, which there were little hints, I think, here and there about what this world really was Mm -hmm. and these meta touches, but it still felt revelatory at the end of the film to have that world shattered and see those different kind of narrative layers at work. Here, as I said, you see it coming from the very beginning, and you're right. It does definitely feel a lot more cluttered. It does seem to take a long time (laughs) to wrap up. It doesn't have the, the kind of elegance that the first one had in terms of hammering its message home about keeping your imagination and retaining that kind of childhood enthusiasm. There's that touch here too, but again, the conceit itself is just not as tight. And as much as I respect it for not trying to just pull that off again, there was a part of me, I'm curious how you felt, that was disappointed that they didn't find a new meta layer to tie this all together that still somehow felt as fresh as the first film. Yeah, I mean, it would be unfair to expect them to be able to, to put that surprise back in the bottle. So you get that. But you're right. Instead, what they've done, instead of trying to top themselves in some way or to go in a very different direction, they doubled down on the reveal, right? Yeah. So so we essentially... Quadruple down. Uh, yes. We essentially see that they're the brother and the sister are at war here. And there are these blurry images of them, you know, coming into the, the Lego characters see them in a way that I think was revealed at the very end of the first film. It's almost like the Incredibles 2, thinking back, where it picks up immediately from where the last film left off. Supposedly it's been a few years, though. Well, at the very beginning, we see the invasion of the Duplo characters, which happens at the end of the first film. And then after that skirmish, Mm -hmm. it's about five years later. That's right. So, But essentially at that point, we know we've got the setup here, okay? It's the the sister's, little sister's room upstairs is, even the clever names they come up with for like our mamageddon yeah uh, it's isn't that clever it isn't because <laughs> and they, they acknowledge it too they do acknowledge it but but like you're saying why do that if the surprise is gone you know in the first film there would be names like that and if you're thinking you oh i i think i see what's going on here in the lego movie too you know what's going on so that loses the cleverness of those sort of naming mm-hmm. conventions i mean you smile the first or second time but by the 14th time um it does start to grow a little bit old and i would also say and this is what struck me as not lord and miller at all is a lot of these jokes you do see coming and it's not to say that this movie has slowed its pace it is still rat a tat tat after you you don't really get a chance to breathe but for some reason the surprise of the gags are gone. You see what's coming a little sooner than you did in the first film. I don't know yeah. if we've, we've all kind of adjusted to Lord and Miller's pace. Maybe. That could be. They've had their hands on a lot of pop culture products and we're, we're now catching up to them. But it did feel a little slow in that area for me. Don't you tell me to Asteroid! Ah! You mind if I save your life? Not at all. 
Who are you? The name's Rex Danger Vest. Galaxy defending archaeologist, cowboy, and raptor trainer. <laughs> I don't get it. Will you help me rescue my friends? You don't want to go anywhere near the Sistar system. It's ruled by an alien queen. Only the toughest are gonna get out of there alive. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> yes, you are. The movie I was thinking about was the movie I adored watching as a very young kid repeatedly, probably on HBO, and that was Airplane. And maybe there were touches of Airplane even in the first one, I don't know, but there were times here where the joke that follows a certain moment or beat that happens is precisely the joke you expected to happen. Someone says exactly predictably what you think they would say in that moment. So there's a lack of surprise there, too. Now, that's part of the humor, even in a movie like Airplane. And sometimes it works here. I found myself, for example, laughing as hard at the scene with a banana peel character as I did at anything else that you absolutely see coming they telegraph it a hundred yards away and that's that's the joke so there are some of those moments and some of those comedic elements here that really work there are other times where they do fall a little bit flat the humor just does here for me that said there are certain characters who consistently deliver and the writing of those characters and the performance delivers and i would say one of those is will arnett as batman again yeah i feel like they're leaning a little heavily on him maybe i mean this is we've already had a lego batman movie he was Maybe the scene stealer of the first Lego movie, and I'm glad he was in this, but I could have used a little less of him. It's It starts to devolve into shtick a little bit here. But I'm glad you mentioned the banana peel so we can get to some of the stuff that we did enjoy. Because I, overall, I thought this was fun. The Raptors, I thought the Raptors were great. No, that's great, especially the tie to Chris Pratt. <laughs> to Chris Pratt. Right. So Emmett, when he's venturing out into space, comes across this new character named Rex Danger Vest. Great name. It is. Uh, better than any of the names in Velvet Buzzsaw. We'll get to oh, that. I don't know about that, but <laughs> it's up there. I mean, Rex Danger Vest could be a character in Velvet Buzzsaw. He could. He could. And Rex Danger Vest pilots this spaceship and his assistants are all raptors. We won't get into why, but it's not just that. It's not just the meta element of that, but the fact that the raptor language is subtitled, so they're yeah. constantly commenting and half of it is like ban- banal office talk. Right. That's great stuff. <laughs> Literal water cooler talk <laughs> yes, yeah. with the raptors. Yeah. Made me laugh every time. I um, agree. The first film, a lot of its humor came from absurd cameos of pop culture figures you would never expect. Many of them are Lego toys, so it was kind of cute to see that. Others of them were completely random. I don't think we got anything as random as we do here. Bruce Willis. Yeah. (laughs) A couple of times just (laughs) living in the ductwork. We can't shake him. I mean, (laughs) after last week. We can't. We can't. That made me laugh as well. Yeah. So, There were plenty of throwaway moments Mm -hmm. that probably got me as well as some of them in the first movie. Are they interwoven into everything else that's going on as intricately, as cleverly? Probably not, but they did still make me laugh. That is the Lego Movie 2 out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. While the public has spoken, Adam, our listener poll results are in determining the subject of our next film spotting marathon. Is it going to be Hal Ashby, John Cassavetes, or Marlena Dietrich? That's next, plus our review of Velvet Buzzsaw and Massacre Theater, which is also going to combine art and horror. Stay with us. We gotta bring both sides together, like champagne and leather, like birds of a feather, we'll fly. Like rain on a sunny day, like a million dollars that you're giving away, like a slave dog on the freeway, we'll fly. 
That's enough of that. No more. No more jokes. That's enough. All right, sit down. Sit down. All right, that's the end of the jokes. Sit down. The end of the jokes. Now we kill the jokes and we just talk. Hello, how are you? Conversation. The good times, they're coming, boys and girls. Peter Falk there in a clip from John Cassavetti's 1974 film, A Woman Under the Influence. Last week, we gave you three options for the next film spotting marathon. We were having trouble deciding. We decided to leave it up to you. Our marathons, of course, are periodic deep dives into a filmmaker or genre or country cinema. We pitted Cassavetes up against Hal Ashby and Marlena Dietrich, and Cassavetes has emerged as the clear winner. 44% of the vote, about 28% apiece for Ashby and Dietrich. So overall, a lot of interest in all three subjects. That bodes well because we do suspect that we'll probably get to Dietrich and Ashby at another point in the future, though it is the case that we have been saying that we were going to do a John Cassavetes marathon on film spotting since 2006. Yikes. This really is 13 years almost in the making. I hope it's worth it. I hope it doesn't take us that long to get to Ashby and Dietrich. That would be yeah. crazy. Good point. So hopefully some of you are relieved. You've been waiting for this for some time and the marathon is coming. We're going to start in a couple of weeks if you want to get a head start on your homework the show that airs Friday, February 22nd, will likely be our first marathon review. The titles we know we'll be discussing are Faces from 1968, The Aforementioned A Woman Under the Influence, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and Opening Night. If you're familiar with the John Cassavetes Criterion Collection box set, it's called Five Films. It's basically that set minus Shadows, the earliest film of that set. We are leaving that out for now, going with those four. That's a set that I just ordered. I'm going to make my regular marathon plug for your local library, Interlibrary Loan. I got that criterion set. It's on the way. Okay. So you got it from the library. I actually have owned it, I think, since 2006. <laughs> but you have. When we were originally planning <laughs> little, this little marathon. dusty on the shelf there. Now, of course, we may consider adding shadows. We may also add husbands from 1970. Minnie Moskowitz is one I'd really like to see from 71, but almost impossible to find or to access easily love streams from 84 also his final film so we're thinking about all of those but probably going to stick with the four we mentioned now the only problem with going with the four we mentioned is that typically in our marathons it's all about the blind spots filling in holes in our cinema education and cassavetes applies for me definitely i have only seen i believe two of his films two of them happen to be included in the marathon as we currently have it lined up, A Woman Under the Influence and Opening Night. I love both those performances from Jenna Rollins. So I've seen two of these four movies already. Takes maybe a little bit of the fun out of it for me, but as I do really enjoy those movies, I'm eager to see them again. And Face is the only one I've seen. So okay. yeah, this is a huge blind spot for me. More information about the marathon and all of our previous marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons next week on the show we are going to discuss another netflix movie steven soderbergh's high flying bird you may recall me mentioning that film along with velvet buzzsaw on our preview of the 2019 movie year andre holland stars as a sports agent who is handling negotiations for a rookie basketball player and they are experiencing a lockout that's really all I know about the film from the trailer. I know that it also stars Daisy Beats and Kyle McLaughlin. Our top five right now for this show, 
we've kicked around a few different options. Josh, you suggested doing something that recognizes editing, obviously, as it relates to Soderbergh's work in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the elements that comes to mind first with him is the editing in his films. And so I thought, why not drill down and come up with a top five marking some of those moments? I think back in 2011, before I was on the show, Adam, you did with Maddie a Soderbergh Scenes top five. We did. So I was a little bit hesitant about this list, and I haven't started preparing for it yet, so I don't know how much trouble I'm going to be in. But as I think about a couple of the selections for that list, at least two of them for sure, I know that the editing and a couple editing choices in particular were key reasons why I chose those scenes, which makes sense, of course, as you think about Steven Soderbergh and his body of work. So there may be some redundancy or some familiar ground to cover, but there's a lot to choose from with Soderbergh. And the fact that you weren't there for that top five Soderbergh scenes, I think, gives us reason to dive back in and take a closer look at his work. You actually found an article about his late editor, Ann V. Coates, who also did Lawrence of Arabia, among many other films. And that article is all about her influence on his career. Yeah, we'll probably dig into that at the top of our lists and uh, really talk about, which I think is important with editing, how it's as collaborative as any other element of filmmaking. So even though he's identified with it, um, it's something that you can trace as a progression in his career. And you can also point to the people who helped turn him towards that direction. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that next week. We will indeed. A reminder for our local Chicago listeners, we have admit two passes to give away to a Tuesday, February 12th screening of Everybody Knows. This is the latest from director Asghar Farhadi, who made a really good film a few years ago, A Separation, also recently The Salesman, and about Ellie, Javier Bardem, and Penelope Cruz star, and Everybody Knows. It opens here in Chicago on February 15th. If you want to enter to see that movie in advance and for free, go to filmspotting.net slash events. Also at filmspotting.net, you can find the shortlist for this year's Film Spotting Madness. We're doing the best of the 2000s, best films of the 2000s. It's actually starting in just a couple of weeks. Longtime listeners know this is our annual March Madness style bracket tournament. We're going to pitch 64, maybe a couple more than that, titles against each other all from the 2000s. Oh my goodness, 97. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got a little time here to catch up with some overlooked titles. If you want to come as an informed voter, check out that shortlist at filmspotting.net. If you see that there's a title missing from that list that you Don't really, you dare comment. You really think, <laughs> send those to Adam and Sam's uh-huh. attention. Yeah. Something like Chime Sideways. Chime in on Letterboxd. I hear that Sideways isn't on there. It came up recently. Little Miss Sunshine yeah. not on nope, there. Nope. So let Adam and Sam know. How they need to reconfigure this yet. I'm sure they're not done tinkering. We haven't figured out the formula yet to exactly pinpoint the movies that are going to make the final dance, but we're getting closer and we look forward to sharing that final list with you in the seating, though that will all begin with the play-in games. Yes. We will have about 10 play-in options to see who makes it into I that mean, final I think group. In previous years, we've only had one play-in game. A what few. Were, what were we thinking? <laughs> I know. I mean, why make it that simple? There's just so many good movies to consider. It's very hard work. We're doing our best. If you want to make sure you've done as much homework as you can at this point, filmspotting.net slash madness, or just go to our main page, and there is a link right at the top. Our website is also where you can subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter. New issues go out every Monday. You get some behind-the-scenes conversations, late-breaking schedule changes, random musings, maybe even continuations of conversations, some disagreements, if you will, that come up on the show, including some follow-up talk this week 
on our review of The Sixth Sense, did a whole Shyamalan show last week looking at his latest film, Glass, in addition to what Josh Larson thinks is his best film, The Sixth Sense. I have it at number two. Yeah. I, in my Shyamalan three. Rankings. I thought you had it three. No, I have it two. Okay. It's behind Unbreakable. Unbreakable is your yeah, number one. It is. All right. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, you can do that. Filmspotting.net slash episodes. Also in the newsletter, you'll get first crack at new film spotting poll questions. Our current poll question asks, what is the best film of 1999? This is part of our nine from 99 conversation on the 20th anniversary of that great movie year. The Sixth Sense was the first entry in our nine from 99 conversation series. We didn't include that in the options. You could have selected that as an other write-in candidate. The choices we did give you were being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, Fight Club, The Matrix, Magnolia, Toy Story 2. And Michael Mann's The Insider was not an option, but it is leading the pack in the other category. I'm going to say that's because producer Sam Van Hogren, who writes the newsletter, yeah. really pushed it hard in a recent edition yeah. touting this poll. Yeah, that's probably it. Or he is having some fun with the math. You never know because no. he just really wants it to come out Those that way. Those things do not go <laughs> They on. never happen here behind the scenes of film spotting. He does love that movie. I'm a big fan of The Insider as well, but not going to get my vote. That poll is still live. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. All right. All that brings us to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Morning. My name's Aileen. My real name's Al, but truth be told, I ain't from this planet, y'all. Alien? They call me. Why are you here? I saw y'all in there. They like nice people. Thought maybe I'd bail you out. Everyone could use a little bailing out once in a while. Why? Why not? Come on, y'all. Why acting suspicious? Get in. Where are we going? Go wherever you all want. Cotty. Got the right idea? Come on. I'll be your chauffeur. Give me a chauffeur. Yeah. Y'all can play Beyonce. That is James Franco's Alien alongside Selena Gomez, Vanessa Hudgens, and Ashley Benson in 2013 Spring Breakers, which was written and directed by Harmony Kareen. That massacre was part of our 2019 movie preview. Any tie-ins there? Well, let's see what the listeners thought. Amy Holmes in Woodside, Queens writes in, This week's scene is from my very favorite movie of 2013, Spring Breakers. It's rare that a movie is so successful at depicting an environment and mode of behavior so faithfully while also masterfully critiquing it, specifically our culture's twin obsessions with violence and the exploitation of young women. I swear to God, I just fell in love with y'all, Amy writes. This year's The Beach Bum, also directed by Harmony Crean, may not rise to the level of Spring Breakers, but I feel very confident it will mess with my head. Indeed, that's what we were thinking as far as primary tie-ins here. The Beach Bum is set to come out on March 29th of this year. Taylor Cole in Chicago also got the Beach Bum connection. Beach Bum stars Matthew McConaughey as a rebellious stoner named Moondog who, quote, lives life by his own rules. 
McConaughey's performance in Magic Mike was featured in the intro to this massacre. Close listener, Taylor. That performance was channeled by Sam Van Hogren when introing the show at the 2012 rap party. One year later, at the 2013 rap party, Sam would go on to intro the show as Alien from Spring wow, Breakers. Wow, that's true. He did his McConaughey. Uh, he did. For Magic Mike, and then he did his Alien. Oh, those were the glory years. I love it when the connections can be so film spotting specific, Taylor says. Also tying in with the 2019 movie preview, Brian De Palma has a new film out this year, and Alien, of course, has Scarface on repeat. <laughs> on repeat, y'all. I love Taylor's work there. Juan Carlos Rodriguez in Orlando, Florida, writes in, I've been listening since God knows when, since Matty Ballgame's early days for sure, and now that I move from Venezuela to Orlando, I hope I can win Massacre Theater at least once. This week's Massacre was a very creepy rendition of a scene from Spring Breakers. It was creepy not so much from Josh's foghorn leghorn from hell, James Franco impression. <laughs> Is that what you were going for, Josh? Yeah, yes, okay. exactly. But Adam's absolutely wide-eyed innocence. <laughs> It made me scream to my phone, don't go there. He is evil. Come on, y'all. Why are you acting suspicious? Get in. Where are we going? We can go where y'all want. You know, I did get called out by another listener for not applying my go-to feminine falsetto yeah. when it actually would have made would've, sense. would have applied. No, I'm not that good of an actor, apparently. <laughs> Didn't occur to me. Steve Parsons in Longmont, Colorado. Man, Josh really nailed Franco's cornrowed creepiness. Can someone please Photoshop some girls in tattoos, please? Now, I want to see that. No, no would be so much cooler. No one wants to see that. At least with the tattoos. <laughs> I do want to see that. Wade McCormick in Kansas City, Missouri, closes us out. Speaking of Oscar nominations, which were also discussed on this episode, James Franco was totally snubbed by the Academy for Alien. I agree, Wade. <laughs> Tie-ins to the 2019 preview include Kareen returning after six years to bring us the beach bum, Selena Gomez appearing in new films this year from Jim Jarmusch and Woody Allen, Ashley Benson in the new Al. Alex Ross Perry film, Her Smell, which premiered at TIFF last year, but is getting its theatrical release in 2019. And Breaker cinematographer Benoit Debbie is the DP for Gaspar Noe's 2019 film, Climax. Wade has really been studying his Wade IMDb. put in some work. Well done, Wade. Okay, let's go ahead, Josh, and reach into the very brimming film spotting hat. Actually, a lot of people caught on. To your James Franco impression from Spring Breakers, you're going to reach in. You're going to pick out this week's winner. Sorry, Juan Carlos, but the winner is Jenny Kelly from Akron, Ohio. Congratulations, Jenny. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. I think Jenny's the one who wrote in as well and said that Spring Breakers was like a test date movie for her and her husband before they got married. Really? He passed the test. Holy cow. Yeah. That is quite a selection. <laughs> It is, and I love Jenny's taste in movies. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your prize. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. All right, that brings us to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, which should be a fun one. I refuse to believe, Josh, that you haven't been practicing this one diligently. I'm afraid I've only watched the scene once. And I don't know. I mean, this I'm a little intimidated. This is an iconic actor. Yes. I don't know that either of us have done him in Massacre Theater before. It seems impossible, but... This actor has been done before, certainly on Massacre Theater yeah. in the long history of the show. But I don't believe by you, and I don't believe by me. <laughs> so... This is a first. We're making history here on Film Spotting, and we're not going to give you any hints because you're really not going to need them, no. I think. Josh, you started off. Actually, you're pretty much doing the whole thing. Are you ready? 
Okay, let's go. Let's do it. And action. Let me tell you what I'm thinking about, sweetie. I was in the bath one day when I realized why I was destined for greatness. You know how concerned people are about appearances. This is attractive. That is not. Well, that is all behind me. I now do what other people only dream. I make art until someone dies. See? (laughs) I am the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist. What do you want? My face on the one dollar bill. And And scene. scene. (laughs) Not bad. Uh, Not bad, Josh. I think I was close. I mean, you were close. You're close enough that we're going to get a lot of entries, I think. A little practice would have helped. Yeah, maybe. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title, along with your name and location, to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, February 18th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Is this you? You have to believe me. They made me do it. The building that you blew up is a DEA safe house. You know how long you'll go away for? Unless you help us get Lino Esparza. Please. I can see it in your a little bit there from the trailer for Catherine Hardwick's latest film, Miss Bala. I have not seen this film, Josh. I haven't seen the original Miss Bala. Enlighten me about both of them. And is this a film you recommend? Well, first off, it's worth spending time on this to encourage people to go see the original Miss Bala. I had not seen it until just a few weeks ago, prompted by the remake. I remember it getting good reviews. It always sounded intriguing. And it's really Strong. It's essentially the same plot in both films. An innocent young woman gets caught between drug dealers and the law in Mexico. In the original, um, the woman lives in Tijuana. In this case, Gina Rodriguez is the star. And so they make her an American who's visiting a friend across the border and gets caught up in the same situation. Um, Boy, you know, it's a cliche when you say, look what Hollywood has done to the foreign language film in their remake and just gotten everything wrong. But that is what has happened here. I think we both agree Gina Rodriguez deserves her own star vehicle. And we'd both like to see that. That was part of the reason I did want to catch up with this too. But this is not, um, you know, this is really doing her a disservice because what may sound like the setup for an exploitation flick, it has these elements that would certainly lend that way. Actually, the original is slyly, feminist in the perspective it takes. A lot of it has to do with the costuming when she's forced to wear something, what she chooses to wear. This Miss Bala with Rodriguez, directed by Hardwick, weirdly sexualizes things to undermine all that. Hmm. So, for example, when she gets kidnapped by the leader of this drug cartel, instead of this creepy guy who's clearly an assaulter, now we have this green-eyed dreamboat who they sort of engage in this dance of flirtatiousness. So what is, you know, these scenes that should be violations are played as seductions. And it's just really creepy. The whole film is played out that way. There's a beauty contest element that it borrows from the original too. In the original, that serves completely as ironic commentary to everything that's going on. And here it's played like a standard makeover scene almost. And then the thing leads to, um, you know, essentially this Rambo climax that's completely its own, tries to set up, I think, a franchise now Hmm. that's uh, did not work at all for me. So a big disappointment. I'm glad it gave me the excuse to watch the original. Would really encourage listeners to track that down, probably rather than going to see this. And how can people 
track down the original Miss Bala. Josh, how did you see it? You know, I usually go the library route and yes. found it that way uh, pretty easily through interlibrary loan. So it is available on DVD. I'm not sure what the streaming options are, but you could probably find it that way too okay. somewhere. The new Miss Bala is currently playing in wide release. You can email us your thoughts, feedback at filmspotting.net. Okay, Adam, I don't think I used any pretentious adjectives in that review. I've been holding them back, mm. saving them for our review of Velvet Buzzsaw. That's next. Stay with us. Right now, before we go anyplace else, I want you to go with me to a special place that I know. It's a museum, but it isn't an ordinary museum. It's a very abstract museum in which they show sound paintings. If you can say that you show sound, but I don't see why you can't. But here we are in this corridor. Some of the most beautiful works of art are here. Time to say thank you to everyone who donated some of their hard-earned cash our way in support of film spotting this week. We start with Michael C., Parts Unknown, unfortunately, and Albert in Pasadena, California. I recently just got a new job where I have to commute and was turned on to this podcast by a friend. I've started by going through all of your year-end lists in reverse and have been very satisfied, even despite Josh picking pain and gain. Come on, Albert, <laughs> get on board. I love a lot of the same movies you have both picked, and now I'm very excited to see some I never even heard about. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia will be my first to watch. I do have one major disappointment. In the 2015 year-end list, I waited through both parts for you guys to talk about my favorite film of that year, Room. However, all four of you failed to mention that brilliant film, even going through your 11 through 30 picks. What happened there? I'd love to hear both your thoughts on that movie. Thank you for this great podcast. I'm excited to keep hearing more episodes. Thank you, Albert, for jumping on board and listening to the show. I hate to only further disappoint Albert as he has sent us money this week, Josh, but I did some research and it's true. Room did not even get really a full review on our show, and I searched your website, Larson on Film, only two and a half stars. That's that's kind of a middling okay it's, review yeah, for you yeah. at best, and you really only wrote a couple paragraphs about it. So you didn't dive into the movie either, and I remember liking it, but it wasn't in my top 30 or 35 of that year, I don't think. I know, so I got nothing more to say about it right now, Albert, without watching the film again, honestly. And that's probably not going to happen. It's always uncomfortable when Room comes up because I know there are so many passionate mm -hmm. fans of it. Uh, my reservations I had about it had to do with it exploiting that material a little bit. Um, but I do think Brie Larson is uh, fantastic mm -hmm. in the role, and there are other things I admired about it. So yeah, a, a mild recommendation, which I don't yep. think is going to make Albert happy. No, but hopefully he will stick with us. We have two gold-level donors this week, Josh in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Patrick Tierney, who writes in from Louisville, Kentucky. And actually, on last week's show or the week before, I mentioned Patrick and already thanked him for his donation, but I tracked down the letter that he sent us via mail. And I wanted to acknowledge it here because it is funny that we are acknowledging this donation in an episode where we're about to talk about Velvet Buzzsaw, which just came out on Netflix. And next week on the show, we're going to review High Flying Bird out on Netflix. We don't typically devote shows to movies that are not playing theatrically, but these are the two most intriguing titles to us to talk about. It just worked out that way. Patrick first wrote into the show 
last year when we talked about three Netflix movies. Remember when we yeah, talked about Private Life? One and, episode. Yeah, a couple others packed into one episode. He didn't love that. And we had a little bit of a correspondence about it. And he wrote us this letter. He said, thank you for taking the airtime to address my brief email about my objection to your Netflix episode. I acknowledge that he was the only person who really wrote in with a complaint about it. He says, I did not detail my objections. While there are several, I did want to mention my primary one in this letter, which is aesthetic. As a parent and teacher of teenagers who are content to experience cinema on the small screen, and no, I don't mean the television, I fear that an experience is being lost. The finer points of acting, direction, cinematography, and score, to name a few, simply cannot be appreciated outside of the theater. With more directors headed to the platform and the 90-day theater window beginning to fade away, I fear that movie theaters may someday become as rare and antiquated as the $2 bill. So in honor of that piece of currency and all old-timey things, I am sending you a $2 a show donation on a check in an envelope with a stamp. (laughs) Through the post office. I sincerely hope that all of these things, including your excellent show, are around for many years to come. Again, Patrick and Louisville. That's great. Patrick is everything he says there is absolutely correct. I will also say that if the only way to see a wonderful film like Tamara Jenkins' Private Life is via Netflix, I'm not going to punish that film for its platform and ignore it. Yeah. So that's not really an answer. It still leaves us in a tough spot, but that's just where I am right now. But he's right about all that. He definitely is. A no-cost way you can help the show, rate or review us on iTunes. Every five-star rating and every review really does help us reach new listeners. So thank you to everyone who also did that this week. Critique is so limiting and emotionally draining. always wanted to do something long-form, beyond opinion, dip my toe into an exploration of origin and essence, a metamorphosis of spirit into reality. I've never had the vehicle until now. Welcome back to Film Spotting. That was Jake Gyllenhaal in Velvet Buzzsaw. Adam, I too have put on my critic badge for our review of this film. Glad to see that we both wrote critic in all yeah. caps. Didn't want anyone Block to miss letters. that. No. Exactly. Velvet Buzzsaw is the new art world satire from writer-director Dan Gilroy, who previously made Roman J. Israel Esquire and Nightcrawler. For those who haven't yet watched Velvet Buzzsaw on Netflix and don't know what we're talking about with this badge stuff, there's a moment where Jake Gyllenhaal's art critic, what's his name, Adam? Do you remember? Morph. Morph Vandewalt. Vandewalt. He shows up at an exhibition with a name tag that says critic. Now, we could spend a lot of time defensively pointing out what's ridiculous about that character from the name on down. But I'll be honest, no matter how silly Velvet Buzzsaw got, I kept rooting for it. Mm -hmm. I stuck with this thing for as long as I could. I like this cast. Rene Russo is also here. Tony Collette. John Malkovich shows up. I've liked similar art world send-ups in the past, from Terry Zweigoff's Art School Confidential, interestingly, also with Malkovich, all the way back to 1959's A Bucket of Blood, in which Dick Miller, who just passed away last month, plays a wannabe beatnik artist. Now, like Bucket of Blood, a Roger Corman production, I was on board for the horror turn that Velvet Buzzsaw takes. When macabre paintings by an unknown artist are discovered after his death and then filtered through the art scene, gruesome murders follow. But the movie just kept failing me, Adam, with its obviousness and its mishandling of those horror elements. As much as I want to play the hero once again after last week's defense of glass and rescue a mostly maligned film... (laughs) I'm going to have to hand that over 
to David Sims of The Atlantic. In his review of Velvet Buzzsaw, he wrote that Gilroy largely makes the movie work by amplifying the ridiculousness and then joyfully tossing his story into a horror fantasy blender for the gory final act. Do you want to join Sims in that uphill battle to champion Velvet Buzzsaw, Adam, or are we on the same page with this one? (laughs) Well, first, a little disclaimer. If during this review I fail to further the realm we analyze, Josh. I'm going to blame it on my cold. I'm about four days into a cold. But that's that's the endeavor here of film spotting every week, just like Morph, to yes. further the realm we analyze. I think, actually, Morph Vandewalt, I just might say that 17 more times. <laughs> Morph Vandewalt might appreciate my conundrum reviewing Velvet Buzzsaw. It sounds like you had a similar one. Nothing is more soul-crushing than unprovocative art. Art that doesn't set you ablaze, either with passion or fury. Then again, thinking about Morph, as we see him engage in his art of criticism in Velvet Buzzsaw, part of his genius seems to be that there never does seem to be a middle ground as a critic. Everything he looks at is either groundbreaking and brilliant or lazy and totally dispensable. Instantaneously. Yeah, immediately. He knows exactly how he feels all the time. It's what I... I long for, actually. (laughs) And it all does seem to be genuine. I think there's an interesting underlying question that we may or may not get into, which is, is Morph a fraud? I want want to get into that. Or how much of a fraud is he beyond whatever fraud is inherent in judging the work of others and being a key part of the machine that prostitutes that art? How compromised he is, is something I think you can certainly discuss surrounding this movie, though by the end of the movie, we definitely have a ruling. I think it would be hard to say that the movie doesn't pass its judgment on Morph Vandewalt. My review of David's review, I did look at it earlier today, is that it's appropriately measured and accurate. Where we disagree slightly, and where it sounds like you and I agree a little bit more, is how much we think Gilroy makes the movie work and why. And for a narrative lacking cohesion to the degree Buzzsaw does... I'd argue the ridiculousness could be even more amplified. And as far as the horror fantasy blender, with maybe only one exception, I thought the death scenes played out either predictably or perfunctory. So those weren't that much fun either. I guess I wanted this movie to be even nuttier than it was, and it didn't deliver. That's completely fair. I mean, we should be clear, if it isn't already, Gilroy knows these names are ridiculous. I mean, I think what you're saying is that it's... Got half a foot into camp, yeah. maybe. And I, I, it's hard to imagine how this would have been more ridiculous. But I think you're right that even embracing it further, I mean, that's what something like a bucket of blood does. And, and maybe that's the distinction between my enjoyment of them. There's something about this movie that seems to still think that it's saying something really smart, even as it also knows it's being completely ludicrous and obvious. Yeah. And those two things are hard to hold together at the same time. Maybe that's the balancing act that is difficult here that isn't entirely pulled off. I I think you're entirely right about the horror. That's when I kind of came to life is is like, okay, this notion that art itself is going to take vengeance on those who would exploit it. Um, Not entirely original, but still interesting, kind of thrilling to see how that works out. Um, But man, these deaths are, they drag on when you see what's happening. They're not, they're weird, but not particularly inventive. I'll I'll give you one that shows it could have been a motif that had been followed through. I think I know where you're going. It's probably the one exception for me. Yeah. Where we won't say who, but a character imitates the posture of a figure in a painting 
just before she is killed. And it was really creepy because we make the visual connection. It suggests what's about to happen. It also suggests this sense of possession, that that it's the victim is being possessed in a way, um, even though it's not that direct. But that really only happens once. And the other killings are fairly routine or unimaginative. So I think that let me down as well. If it was yeah. going to dive into this horror element, sure. that wasn't all that well executed. No, I agree. And I think we are talking about the same one. And we won't get into the details of it and the exact character. But it's a moment where this particular character is seen to be completely ignoring some art that is behind her. Are we talking about the same one here? And she no. entered. Okay, you're talking about a different one. Now I want to know which character you're how thinking about we, of. How about we move this to a little spoiler talk? Okay, well, at the, the end, one. Because the I one, want to talk about Morph, too, in spoiler. The one death scene I really liked involved a character who is ignoring some art mm-hmm. that is right behind her and is filling up the frame for us to see. And then kind of enters a portal into another dimension. And at that moment, she now cares about the art because it's been mm. now transported to a setting that is more pristine it's a gallery it all of a sudden makes this art seem valuable at least that's the way i read it and then what we do get is a moment where literally the art consumes the consumer the person who commodifies the art and that is a savage bit of wit that's also really visually fun. And that's yeah. why that's the only sequence, really, as far as the death scenes go, that I really like. There's one that you see coming a mile away, and actually from the moment that piece of art is introduced, you're waiting for something to go wrong with it. But then when it plays out the way it does, it's exactly what you expected it to it be. Is. They don't do anything intriguing with it. Yeah, and this is this is the sphere. Yeah, the I mean, sphere. Yeah. And I, I bring that up just to make sure because the sphere is also used and the aftermath of that is to repeat a joke that's used at least three times in the film, which is a common joke when it comes to art world spoofs. Yeah. That someone mistakes something mundane or in this case horrible for art and they ignore it. They're ignoring the aftermath mm-hmm. of this death. There's just, you know, the most excruciating scene in the film is probably when Malkovich's artist is walking across his studio and the establishing shot of the room, we see there are three trash bags in the middle. As soon as I saw those trash bags, I, I said out loud to the screen, do not have someone walk in. Oh, you know they're going to do it. And say, this is a beautiful piece of art. Of course, someone does. Of course, Malkovich says, that's not art and keeps walking. And it's like, and we've gotten that already in this yeah. film and we're going to get it again later. So that's the sort of obviousness that is is just working against whatever clever bits of wit there are. Yeah, I think the scene for me that summed up the movie in a lot of ways, and I think gets at what you're suggesting as well, is a sequence fairly early on where Rene Russo's character, I think she's very good as Rodora, who is the head of this gallery, because I like the way she projects power and the way she projects someone who has clearly made a decision at this point in her life to be compromised. She knows what the rules of the game are, and she's committed to that, but she isn't a caricature of this character, to me at all. No. And there's nothing about her that says sort of capital E evil. She's just a person who has accepted the terms of this universe and is navigating her way through it. And we at times find her a little bit repulsive, and at other times we completely understand where she's coming from. So I really like Russo's performance. And there's a scene where she's in her gallery and it opens before she walks into the scene. We realize fairly quickly that we're looking at an exhibit, an installation of what seems to be sort of the modern middle class family 
there are a couple kids in the background and a daughter with the parents and the dad's got a beer and they're watching the TV and the lottery is on. And then she appears in the frame and she says, it just seemed edgier at the Biennale. And it does hit you that in a different context, that same work of art with just maybe slightly different lighting or with just a, a little bit of a different tone or whatever it is, it could seem the very same piece could seem edgier or more challenging or more provocative. And all of a sudden her seeing it in that different context, it doesn't produce that same response. That is the way art is. And this film is that way where maybe it seemed edgier to Gilroy when he started it. Maybe it seemed edgier to all of us when it began, but as it plays out and hits all those familiar beats and the familiar jokes, it loses that edge. And it doesn't also, I'll just say, unfortunately what it doesn't do, which you would think it would accomplished based on where it goes, where we know it's going, and what Gilroy did so successfully with Nightcrawler, is you think it would be unnerving. Mm -hmm. That it would manage to do what great art sometimes does, which is disturb. And it never does that. No, it's too big for that. Do you think that edge that you're talking about, which I agree, that that makes a lot of sense to me, do you think that edge might have come in the theatrical experience? Because this is another Netflix film um, to me that it's... Partly it is watching it in this case by myself at home yeah. when I think I would have enjoyed this more in a theater with people who were on its wavelength a little mm-hmm. bit more. But there's also a visual flatness to it yeah. that I, I'm i trying to reconcile. Is it watching something on my laptop or my TV screen as opposed to watching something in the theater? I mean, it's it's just become a recurring thing. That, yeah. This also felt to me like um, – a squished together TV series. I was going to say That's that happened too. A few right times from the beginning. Right from the beginning, and it's surprising because it's Robert Ellswood, who's a great cinematographer. That's the other thing, and yet yes. there's something about it right from the very beginning that makes you feel like you're watching a TV show. That yeah. you're watching a series that's been compressed into two hours. It's the aesthetic. It's also the ensemble cast. And you're right about Russo. She's the only one who is not playing a caricature here. Um, I don't know that she's written all that differently, but the way she's delivering that line you quote could be another groaner coming from Gyllenhaal, yeah. but but she doesn't quite sell it that way. She's very similar to her character in Nightcrawler yeah. um, and gives a, you know, maybe not as good a performance as she does there, but probably the best one in this film. And, you know, Nightcrawler, maybe this shouldn't be such a shock because I didn't find it to be a fatal flaw of Nightcrawler, which is an excellent movie, but I did think the media satire element there was not its strongest point. It was, it was a little bit obvious as well, this uh, TV news world that we're right. placed in. Uh, it was a little bit dated, too, in the sense that it, it was imagined, it was, what, four or five years ago now, an imagined world where everyone is still glued to their nightly newscast. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of how the depiction of the art world here works a little bit, too. It has a, a little bit of a dated sense to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the satire element in Nightcrawler was the strength of that film either, but this is so much more toothless in its satire. It's almost oh, as if absolutely. it's almost as if Gilroy at some point just decided to have a little bit of fun at these characters' expense, parody the art world to an extent, but never go that route into full blown satire. I do want to single out a couple elements I liked or a couple moments and a visual moment actually. I really like how LA is shot in this movie. We only get maybe four or five moments and they're kind of just scene breakers and yet there's something about the way LA is shot. We've seen it in so many movies. Every movie that takes place in LA, especially if they're horror based or they're darker kind of films, there's a noir element to them. We'll get that shot of the city of lights down below 
looking down from a canyon or whatever. And yet something about the way it's shot here, subtle little differences in the color and the angle. Every time we see L.A., it seemed to me that it looked different. And it seemed to me almost like something out of some of these paintings that we see in the film. I did enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, the Deese paintings as well. Deese is the name of the artist who we never meet. Um, he's he's dead by the time the story gets going. I think, and I tried to look up who I did actually too. made those. I, I couldn't did too. Find I couldn't it. find it. Because I do think they have um, a, a dark allure to them, a pull. Absolutely. Uh, and it's not just that they're gross or creepy. No. There, there's something more than that to them, um, which I think is important. I, I don't know if there's... A consistency to them. I feel like some of them, maybe they weren't these paintings, and I was assuming that it was supposed to be, and it was another artist. Hmm. Um, but the ones that really had a pull, uh, I thought. I thought that was a nice visual touch no, as well. Without a doubt, it's crucial. I think we do have to buy, even in this absurd world, we do have to buy that that art can be that captivating. Yeah. that it can be that mesmerizing. That it can be at least elicit that strong of an opinion, elicit, whether you like it or exactly not. that response and. It's beautiful. It's creepy. I don't think it does require any knowledge of the artist, though that's what the Morph character does is he tries to get all the backstory. We don't need to understand the stories behind its creation. We don't need to read these pretentious ruminations on its power and meaning. We can just look at it as viewers, and immediately it does have kind of a, a startling effect. It grabs our imagination. I thought that was a key, key part of the film. John Malkovich, as an artist character here in the film, has kind of a throwaway role. And yet there are two moments with him that I really enjoyed that I thought were kind of funny. One is when he sees a Deese painting for the first time and he actually comes up behind David Diggs character who plays another artist, mm -hmm. an up and comer named Damrish. And he is mesmerized looking at Deese. And then the Malkovich character comes up behind him and we've heard earlier in the film that he's now sober. Yeah. He's looking for water. He doesn't drink anymore. And he just silently grabs a scotch off a tray yeah. that goes by him, right, and takes a drink in that moment. It says everything we need to know about that character and his reaction to the art. We don't even see the art. We just see in Malkovich's face and in that action the recognition that I couldn't do that or those days are behind me or whatever it is, that horror that artists always face that someone else is doing it better and maybe I don't have it anymore. We get all of that there just in that little moment. Yeah, that that is a nice moment. And I should say also, I don't think Malkovich is doing a character. No. Despite the fact that he has that bad scene where he says that's not art. No, that's you're right. just a throwaway. But I think he, he is giving us someone who's um, more fully rounded. And again, someone I could see if this had been a short television series, we would have learned a lot more about because um, yes. the performance deserves more no, screen time. you're right, actually. And not a spoiler, but the movie ends with him. So it does put some during the credits. Yeah, right. The movie does end with him. So in a way, it puts a little bit of a premium on his character and his perspective. The scene you were talking about with the trash, there is a moment I really love in that scene, though. He's moved into this new studio space and his new agent, the new guy who's representing him trying to sell all of his art, John Don Don is his great name. Tom Sturridge is the actor. He comes in and he's telling him how eager he is to see everything he's got since the move. And they're otherwise in this just empty warehouse. And this is a moment where Gilroy doesn't show us again the space. He just lets us live in the space and lets us just look at the character as he's looking around, clinging to this idea that any moment the artist is going to show him 27 
things that he's been working on. Instead, that moment just starts to dawn on him, on both of them, as the artist stays silent, that he has nothing new to look at, mm-hmm. that he is bereft of ideas. And I think that that's a moment that was actually funny as we see that little epiphany, as we see it occur to the agent character. But at the same time, there's something heartbreaking about that moment for the artist. Yeah, and I think that's rooted in Malkovich's performance. You know, for sure. He's not going as big as the others, so we can have that extra level of feeling there. I thought your studio was downtown. Too many addiction triggers. I worked here the last year. Well, I'd love to see all the new work you've done since moving because, you know, the team is, is geared up and ready to sell every new piece you have. Right. Sure, of course. Now, you, you've, you've been gestating. Gestation implies birth. Ideas come, but they kill themselves as soon as they appear. This is a slaughterhouse. Welcome aboard. All right, can I ask you a spoiler question? Okay, let's Maybe do it. We'll t- take a moment here if you haven't seen Velvet Buzzsaw yet and you want to go into it uh, not knowing anything. Jump ahead a little bit. We're going to talk about spoilers. First off, the killing scene that I was talking about uh, that I do think is effective to a degree mm-hmm. is Rene Russo's character. And there's the painting in her bedroom. This yeah. is one that I'm not – I assume it's a Deese, but it has a different style than the others. No, you're right. That one isn't immediately clear. So to either way. Either. Yeah. Um, and this lead this ties into the question I want to get to. But uh, essentially it's of um, a figure – next to a cat, and they're both kneeling on the ground in their shadows Mm -hmm. coming out in front of them. She goes out to her patio, and unknowingly, it seems to me, she mimics this pose, and her cat comes up and sits next to her just before she's killed. So that's the one I was talking about where there there was something very unnerving about that where you – there's the visual symmetry, which is is just kind of a nice touch, but also this, okay, is the painting possessing her? Like what's going on? But it's undercut. By this bazaar, she has a buzzsaw. Velvet buzzsaw. Velvet yeah. buzzsaw is the name, the name of, the of band her band when she, she was back yeah. as a rebel and a hellraiser yep. and a true artist. So she still has a tattoo with um, of actual buzzsaw as part of the, the band name on her neck, her shoulder. And all of a sudden that starts spinning around and that's essentially what kills her. So here's, here's my question. Um, and, and actually, I'm going to borrow it on Letterboxd. Um, Jorge Rodriguez posted this, a comment on my Letterboxd review. He said, I was never sure of the rules of the game here. We are led to believe that Deese's paintings are haunted somehow by his spirit, but it's usually the artwork of others that proves murderous. Is it all art sold for profit that kills, only Deese's, or does Deese's work give power to other art? Horror movies that don't operate by clear rules are so rarely satisfying. I feel. And I think that's a fair question. A lot of times when it comes yeah. to horror, I'm willing to throw some of this out, but it relates to what you were saying about morph mm-hmm. as well. Yep. My question on top of this is, uh, is are people just being killed indiscriminately? Because I think morph has as much of a buffoon as he is. Let's be clear about it. He's not really all that compromised. He has a genuine appreciation for art. I feel the same way. And you know I feel who, that he does. Yeah. You know who else does? I think. This is a little bit more of a stretch, but he doesn't show up a lot. But early on, we meet Bryson, played by Billy Magnuson, who's yeah. installing the art in Rene Russo's exhibition space. But he says, I'm an artist, too. Right. And he see, we don't know a lot about him, but you do feel like he's he genuinely wants to create art. He's not in it just to no, get the cash. That is true. And he's the first kill, right? He's the first kill, though, I think, because he does... As I recall it, 
he does try to steal the painting. Is is he stealing? Those I think to, he's to taking sell them. them or to or just to hang on to them because as we see, like all the other artists in the film, he has an allure. There's right. there's something. That's so I guess I would say magnetizing was, about those may, images. So maybe in a way he's appreciating. I think them. they're I don't all. Know. I think they're all art appreciators. Obviously, that's why they're in this line of work. Sure, started but, that way, but. At some point, they got compromised. Every single one of them. They got compromised by the lure of fame, of money, of power, and they succumb to that. And so they are targets for Deese in his paintings. I think that that's ultimately the implication. But then I didn't find the way that Gyllenhaal's character is dispatched to really fall in line with that much at all. No, It actually involves an earlier character and a different artist from the very beginning of the film. Yeah. And I didn't really see how that completely tied in. But I think Gilroy is saying that the people who all seek to directly profit from Deese's art are the ones who are doomed. But then it's a little bit curious that Gyllenhaal is the one character. Morph is the one character who seems to want to get at the truth of his art. Right. And who actually does have an about face, who realizes how compromised he is. And tries to do something about yeah. it. How compromised they all are and tries to do something about it. And then the movie still punishes him anyway. And maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is, well, he's too compromised. He's it's too late. Yeah. You're tainted. You can't overcome that. What about that weird uh, plot point we get, though, where we learn there's suspicion that he's been selling his opinion early to Rene Russo's yes. character. But then we find out, no, he's just been sharing it with his boyfriend who, unbeknownst to him, that's what I'm saying as far as how it. compromised is he? And there are layers of compromise, and we can obviously parse all of that. But at some point, the movie does make clear he's confronted by Colette's character. She says to him, basically, I'll strike a deal with you, the yeah. same one you have with Rodora, with Rene Russo's character, where, you know, we'll work this out. We'll both profit from it. And he seems horrified. Right. Genuinely. That she is, yeah, genuinely. Yeah. That she is accusing him of that. And we come to find out that. No, there was no arrangement like that, right. that he was being sold out by his lover. So there is at least some kind of assertion that he maybe isn't quite the fraud that some of the other people are, that maybe he is more of an appreciator of art than some of the others. But then maybe, maybe what the movie is saying is in his desire to accomplish what he thinks he needs to as an artist, he's doing it on the back of Deese. He has that whole speech where he says, I've never had the vehicle to live out sure. my dream, to do what I want to do with art, and now I have it. And he's going to take Deese's story, and off the back of that, he's going to be the success he wants to be. Which is, which is a, essentially a skewering of criticism, so that would make yeah. sense, too. I don't know. Hey, I'm, I'm Team Morph. I'm going to wear my critic's badge with pride. You know, it's funny, actually. In closing, we were at the Lego screening with Tasha Robinson from The Next Picture Show, and she tweeted, I think right before... I walked into that screening. I saw a tweet from her where she linked to a review of Velvet Buzzsaw from Noah Berlatsky, where she said he has an intriguing premise. I've only seen Tasha's tweet, but has an intriguing premise that the real fantasy of Velvet Buzzsaw is the power it gives to the artist and to the critic. And I do find that curious as well, because if you think about it, the movie suggests that Morph as a writer and as a critic has unbelievable power power that nobody i know as a film critic for example actually wields <laughs> he's like and maybe has one. never wielded or hasn't wielded in at least three or four decades he's the only critic in town as well and why don't i have that house i mean come I on know. 
I've been working hard as a critic here. This guy has a mansion. You're not compromised the, enough. Uh, apparently, you need some deals on the side. Like the car, he's got a nice car. I know. Yeah, everything is a fantasy here. Velvet Buzzsaw is currently streaming on Netflix. If you saw it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can vote in the Film Spotting poll. Right now, we're asking, what is the best film of 1999? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt and just aren't confident in your chances of winning it, via Massacre Theater, you could just buy one. Go visit filmspotting.net slash shop. We've got t-shirts and all other sorts of merch there. If you want to connect with Adam and I on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to that weekly Filmspotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash episodes. Out in wide release this weekend, Cold Pursuit. Liam Neeson is a snowplow driver seeking revenge against the drug dealers he thinks killed his son. did you say snowplow driver? I did. Is he named Morph? <laughs> no. The prodigy. A mother concerned about her young son's disturbing behavior thinks something supernatural may be affecting him and what men want. Taraji P. Henson as a sports agent who develops the ability to hear men's thoughts. Those are all out along with the Lego Movie 2, which we are giving a recommendation, if not quite the glowing one we gave to the original Lego Movie. Out in limited release Opening here in Chicago, everybody knows the latest from Asghar Farhadi. Next week on the show, we will discuss Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird. That is new on Netflix this weekend. And share our top five Soderbergh editing achievements or something along those lines. There we might will, be a better term for that. Yeah, maybe. We'll but we'll look at next week. some of our favorite Steven Soderbergh scenes through the lens of his editing choices. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can reach a few new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.